please join me in the prayer for guidance. Lord, Lord, open open our our hearts and minds by the power power of your Holy Spirit, that that as the scriptures are read read, and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. The scripture this morning is from Luke 23, verses 32 to 43, and it's page 89 in the New Testament of your Pew Bible, if you'd like to read along. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. Thank you, Judith. Well, this is the last in the series on redemption. Uh, redemption, of course, in our Christian sense, uh, you know, we've talked about the commercial sense. Redemption is when you go and you redeem a coupon. Uh, you take something uh, and you receive something in return for it. Uh, redemption in the Christian sense all or- orients itself around the cross, while we also have illustrations of it through the Bible. The Old Testament, we talked about uh, Hosea. And uh, uh, God asking him to marry a prostitute and how that prostitute's life is redeemed through Hosea uh, just as the prostitute nation Israel that has gone off after other gods rather than the true God uh, has been redeemed by God. Uh, And uh, that word redeemer is all all through the scriptures. Uh, Our very first hymn in our hymn book is O Four Thousand Tongues to Sing and the first verse says, My Great Redeemer's Love. My great Redeemer's love. That Christ died for us on the cross, a ransom for us, that our sins would be forgiven. That's redemption in the Christian sense. Ultimately, that's where we come to. And there are many pictures of this throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. Now, uh, this morning as we look at this particular uh, uh, scripture here, Part of this week, this holy week, is, of course, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on Good Friday. We call it good. Why? Uh, How can we call this good? Well, it's good because for us it was good. Uh, uh, The children are going to sing a little song. I think they're singing this next week. It was a good day. 
on a bad day. It was a good day on a bad day. And, uh, and what it's talking about is that in many ways this week is tragic, but it's also glorious. That God works his will through this. Isn't that a very uh, comforting thing to think that in the weakest and smallest of churches, God may be doing his greatest work? God may work miracles through the people who you would never expect for that to happen. That's another theme of scripture. Is God doesn't need the powerful human being, the good-looking, the, the charismatic person to do his will. Most often, God does his will through the week. And Paul says that's how God proves his will, or his strength, his love to us, is that he does these things through the less remarkable people in our world. And so here we have Jesus Christ on a cross. Two thieves on either side. Do you remember how many times the disciples would argue, Lord... Will you let me sit on your right when you come into your kingdom? Or can I be on your left? You know, the two brothers, uh, James and John, they want to be sitting on either side of Jesus. And here is Jesus, and he's got two thieves on either side. And the disciples are nowhere to be found begging to be on the left or the right of Jesus. Not for this crucifixion. And you know they felt totally defeated. That week in Jerusalem... As Jesus is coming in and the loud hosannas, if all you do is come on Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, you've missed everything. Because Palm Sunday, you say, well, Jesus came in and everything was hunky-dory and the people loved him and they were praising him and singing to him. And then you come to Easter and say, and now Jesus, he's up and he's, he's, it's a glorious day and, uh, you know, everything's good, right? But what happens in between? When you look at Jerusalem, historically, when you look at what happened there before Jesus was born and, and in, the, in, the, in the decades before that as Rome moved in and took over, and during the life of Jesus, that is a terrible place to be. Uh, the Romans had crucified thousands of people. And there had been this tension. And so when it comes to the Passover week, this week, what happens in Jerusalem? People from all over, Jews from all over, come to celebrate the Passover in their holy city. The Passover, of course, was part of our redemption, God redeeming them out of slavery in Egypt. The Passover celebrates that. And so when you think about the message of Passover, how the Jews were freed from the oppressive regime of the Egyptians, and now they are under the Romans... Well, don't you think the Romans are a little bit nervous about Passover? It seems like a strange holiday for them. You know, they don't quite understand it, but they know this. It sends a message that the Romans don't want them to hear about God freeing them from an occupying force. And so, on the very day that Jesus comes in from the eastern gate... See, this is the thing, symbolically in the scriptures, the Messiah, when Jesus returns one day, he will come from the eastern sky... So when you see that sun rising up in the morning, that's the direction that Jesus will return. And, and so if you're, uh, uh, most cemeteries are going to be oriented away that the person's head as they rise up will be facing the east so that the first person, the resurrected person sees is Jesus Christ. Now we've had talks about resurrection and the resurrected body and so forth, but that is traditional. It's also, uh, I went to a Jewish synagogue one time, and that's also where the elders of the synagogue sit. They sit in a separate place, and they are always facing the east, as opposed to the congregation. So that has a lot of significance. Well, it so happens on the very same day that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem from the east, 
Pilate and Roman soldiers on horses are coming into Jerusalem from the west. And the reason they're coming at this particular time of the year is they know that there is a lot of uh, opportunity for trouble in Jerusalem during this week. That if there is going to be an uprising, a war fought against the Romans, a revolution started, it's going to start during the Passover week because Jerusalem usually has a population of twenty to 30,000. During this week, it will swell up to two to 300,000 people, ten times as many people will be there. And then Jesus comes in from the east, and the people are singing Hosanna to the King, who comes, you know, in the name of the Lord, who, you know, son of David, and one of their previous kings. The Romans are hearing this, and the religious leaders are hearing this, who they just want peace and quiet. They don't want anybody stirring things up. So they're called the Sanhedrin. They are the, uh, the ruling people of Jerusalem, so to speak, even though the Romans are over them. Do you know that the chief priest Caiaphas there in Jerusalem, by name, he was the, like the mayor of Jerusalem. But if he wanted to put on his priestly robes, which is the only way he could do something officially, when he wasn't in his robes, he, he wasn't uh, uh, allowed to say anything on behalf of God. So if he wanted to speak on behalf of God, he had to wear these robes. Well, where were his robes kept? In the Roman governor's house. So if he wanted to do anything with authority, he had to go to the Roman governor and ask for his robes so he could put them on. So that's the way the Roman governor kept control. If you want to talk to your people, you need to go through me. It's a really tense time there. And it's, and it's rife for revolution. In fact, a revolution breaks out four decades later in Jerusalem. And uh, it ends up with the defeat of the, uh, of the Jewish people. And they are scattered all over the world. And, uh, that, and don't come back to Jerusalem until the last century in the 1940s. They're scattered by the Romans. And Jerusalem is burned down. The heat gets so intense that the, t- that the rocks that the temple is built out of, these huge rocks explode from the heat. So you're talking about a tinderbox, and you're talking about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and he comes in with this reputation of being a healer, but also being someone who the people are calling Messiah and King, and the Romans are very nervous about him. And so when they go to crucify Jesus, uh, you know, they don't just take him off down an alleyway someplace and, you know, slit his throat. Do something kind of out of the way, something that the people won't notice. That wasn't the Roman way of doing things. They didn't do things quietly behind the scenes. They made a big show. So when they're riding in from the west, they've got their horses, and they've got their best armor on, and all, every symbol of Roman power is coming in, while over here, the kingdom of God, represented by Jesus riding on a donkey, a procession of peace, coming into the city, and here come the Romans, and they're going to clash. And so when they hang Jesus on the cross, unlike in this picture, it it is thought that probably the crosses weren't that tall. That in actuality, Jesus, the flats of his feet would have been about two feet, perhaps, off the ground. Why? Timber was in shortage. the The value of wood in that area was great. And they would reuse these crosses over and over and over. 
And what was interesting about this to me is as Jesus hangs on the cross, normally our view is that Jesus is way up here. And so he's kind of separated from us. We can't meet him eye to eye. But on the other hand, if he's just a couple feet off the ground, as people go by, they're looking straight in his face. The Romans wanted to embarrass the people. They wanted to make this personal. They wanted to say, we are in control. Here is your king. So we'll put a sign on here that says, the king of the Jews. And when the Sanhedrin, when the rulers say, the Jewish leaders say, hey, uh, could you soften this up a bit? You know, they were marketing experts, right? They said, yeah, I don't know if this king of the Jews slogan is going to work. We need to change that. But could you say, he said he was the king of the Jews. He made the claim he was the king of the Jews. But don't just put up there he's the king of the Jews. That makes it sound like he's really our king. The Romans said, no, as it's written. That's how it's staying. Why? Because they wanted the Jews to know, this is your king. If you ever have a king, this is what happens to him. This is what he looks like. Bruised. Imagine the eyes, you know, just he can't, can't hardly see out of these eyes that he has been beaten so badly, beaten to a pulp, which is why it's believed he only lasted six hours on the cross. And you die of asphyxiation. You can't breathe anymore. And uh, it's not from bleeding. And, uh, and oftentimes they didn't use nails. They just tied people up and they would last for days. And so this is a very cruel time. And Jesus isn't just walking, you know, on air through this time. But he's suffering. And the whole idea of what the Romans are doing is to say to the people, you can never beat us. Look at your king. Look at your miracle worker. In fact, one of the thieves on the cross next to him, what do they say? If you are who you say you are, why don't you get yourself off this cross and save us too? You're the great miracle worker. If, you're, if you are uh, the Messiah, you can do this. Go ahead and do it. But God has an interesting plan, doesn't he? God has, from the very beginning, had a plan. And he worked it, as we've seen over the past few weeks, through a prostitute who Hosea marries, through Ruth, through Lot. I mean, all these people whose blood is running through the veins of Jesus are people who failed, often failed, uh, or were strangers, weren't of the people of Israel, like Ruth. God is taking these people and he's, he's running this, this line down to where his son will be born into the world and his son will live in such a way and teach in such a way that people will see a whole new side to life and a whole new way of living. And then he'll go to the cross and because people naturally believe it's all about power, that's what we believe. Every government in this world that I know of believes in power. You have armies. You have missiles, power. You go around impressing others with your power. Parades and uniforms and power. That's the way of the world. That's what came in from the western gate. But Jesus comes in and there's a whole different thing going on here. And then he goes to the cross. And he says, and one of the thieves is listening, Father, Forgive them. He doesn't say, Father, rain fire and brimstone down upon them. He doesn't say, Father, strike them with the plague. He says, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. And the thief says to him, first he says to the other thief, cut it out, stop it. We deserve this, but this man has done nothing. And then he says to Jesus, remember me, Jesus remember me, nine words, Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's it. Jesus says to him, I tell you, truly this day you will be with me in paradise. Now what does that mean? Where is paradise? What is paradise? Paradise is the Garden of Eden. It's the same word used for the Garden of Eden as used for paradise here. It's perfection. You are going to be in that perfect garden again. And you'll be there with me and we'll walk together. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that, what? I am his own. That's the amazing thing here. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Not today, you'll be in paradise and I'll be off, you know, in the big house, in the big mansion of heaven because I'm too good for you. But instead, I will be with you, the thief. And we're going to be walking around together. And God offers that to every one of us, no matter what our sins are that we have been redeemed from. He offers that to us. And this is not because God is just a big, you know, sappy softy up there. He says, oh, it's all good. I just want to make everybody feel good. That's not God. It's possible because God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die on that cross for you and for me and for everyone who ever has sinned, which is all of us, so that redemption could come. And what is redemption? You never sinned in God's eyes. When you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then in God's eyes, you have never sinned. You are clean. White as snow. It's over. Don't look back. Don't think about it. Don't beat yourself up about your mistakes. Don't say, I'm not good enough. I don't know if God will ever accept me. I'm sure I couldn't get into heaven. I haven't done enough good things. All those things, throw them away because Jesus Christ died for you and for me and every one of us no matter who we are and what we've done on that cross. And to say anything different is to denigrate the love of God that put him there. God had a plan from the very beginning. And that plan was that Jesus Christ would come and die for you and me and redeem us of our sins. And that thief on the cross had no opportunity to redeem himself Go to the next screen, real quick. I bring this up kind of out of place here. Last sermon, I, I did it at the beginning. And so, but I, I, did, I, I want you to see something here. When we think of redemption, we think of self-redemption. Redemption in this world is up to you to redeem yourself. You ever had a parent say to you, or hear of a parent saying to their child, next report card period, you better redeem yourself. Okay? Or, you know, in sports, like this. Maybe Coach Tony Bennett went to them after they had lost the year before. An embarrassing loss by 20 points to a 16th seeded team. Never had happened before in the history of the NCAAs had a number one seed lost to a number 16 seed. Unheard of. Nobody predicted it. Nobody bet on it. But it happened. And that team, that guy right there, number five, he was in counseling the whole year after that loss. 
He had to have somebody help him get through his grief and his disappointment and his feeling of how could this have happened? It's a bad dream. Certainly this did not happen. And so Guy there at the end, this year, he's the most valuable player. He's a guy, remember, with six-tenths of a second left, he, hits, he shoots the three-pointer and he's fouled against Auburn. You know, uh, he had just hit a three-pointer just before that. He's the hero. A year later, he redeemed himself. The team redeemed themselves. The year before, people, Virginia fans, were calling for the coach to be fired, the players to be fired if you can do such a thing, or encourage them to go find other schools to play for, but we're sick and tired of this. This is embarrassing. We don't want to have this anymore. This team, one of the things I read was they never stopped telling the story of the loss to the University of Maryland at Baltimore County. Think about that. You lost the University of Maryland at Baltimore County. Now, some people would have said, well, the best way to deal with this is to forget about it. That's in the past. It's gone. But they said that, uh, and I won't get into the details of it, but they got advice that said to them, no, what you need to do is keep telling that story over and over. Just like we tell this story about Jesus over and over and over. But the difference is that God isn't asking you to redeem yourself. God isn't asking you to make up for your sins, to earn his love. Instead, God is saying, my son is your redeemer. He does the whole thing and you don't need anything else and you don't need yourself. Take that Virginia thing off. I'm not a big Virginia fan. Thank you. Uh... (laughs) I, I did root for them in that game, though. You see the wonder and beauty of it all that God from the very beginning ran these threads through history so that on that day when not a single person in the world had any hope left that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and the Savior, no one believed it. On that day, everything came together for Jesus Christ to redeem us on the cross. And then, lo and behold, God, through His power, raised Him from the grave so that you and I not only can have assurance that our sins are forgiven, that we're redeemed, but that we're also a resurrection people. You know, it's like the frosting on top of the cake. I like the cake. I love the frosting. And God has just prepared this in such a way nobody could have made this up. This is part of the reason I believe it. Who could make this up? Who could put it together in a Bible, in something like the Bible, and have it make sense the way it does? What a glorious week this is for us. What a glorious Sunday it's going to be next Sunday. And folks, I'm happy. i got to admit, during the week, I go up and down, and there were points during the week I wished it was Sunday. I was so excited about this and this message. And I hope you're excited about it too. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Let us rejoice. I want to encourage you uh, to uh, think about that, that thief on the cross, uh, just minutes, hours before he dies, he places his faith in Jesus Christ. And a lot of people call that a, a, a deathbed confession. And it's true, anybody, you can be saved at any point in your life. And some people say, well, I think I'm going to wait until you know, I'm close to death and then I'll go ahead, which is, you have no idea whether or not you'll be in any condition for that to happen. But also there's the question, why in the world would you not exchange this life the way it is without Christ 
for that old rugged cross and spend all of your days that you can with him. And so I would encourage you to think about that. If you have been baptized and going to church all your life, but your commitment to Jesus Christ either has never really been there or, or it's weakened over time, make that commitment real and do it today. Do it now. Uh, Dwight Moody, a fa- famous incident in his life. He was a great preacher. I'll be short on this, but he was a great preacher in Chicago. And Dwight Moody uh, was preaching at the largest church in Chicago on the day of the Chicago fire, having no idea that that week 300 people would die in the fire, some of them part of that congregation. And he had made an agreement with them. He had told them at the end of the service, he said, I want you to go home and I want you to spend this week seriously considering whether or not you want Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. And then we'll come back next Sunday. And you can share that confession of faith in Jesus Christ if you've made that decision. And he said, that day, some of those folks who I had made that invitation to, their lives were taken in that fire. So he said, I made a pact with myself never to delay it. Never to say there's time because we don't know. So I would encourage you this day, make that decision for Jesus Christ if you have not done that. And if you had, if you have go ahead and recommit yourself to it. Let us pray. Holy Father, we go forth totally dependent upon you, your grace, your redeeming love. We thank you, Lord, that you have left nothing in our hands because our hands are not worthy or capable of saving ourselves. But through your Son, Jesus Christ, Father, a thief on a cross, Father, uh, a, a, a truck driver, a school teacher, Uh, a president, a congressman, whoever it is. It doesn't matter. Through your son, Jesus Christ, salvation is available free. We thank you, O Lord, for the great gift that you have given us for this week that we celebrate this gift and for next Sunday when we come together to, to, to proclaim he is alive. And it is in his holy name that we pray. And amen.